Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico and joining me is... Scotty Hertz and just to let people know, no new speakers here, even though there is right across North America almost. You're getting the same <laughs> new guys you've had for, well, for years now, so... Well, I mean, in, in the case of uh, Kevin McCarthy, he was speaker for nine months. He had more oh. votes to be speaker than he had months being speaker, which is <laughs> probably not a distinction you want on your Wikipedia page. No, oh, and first one smoked ever, is that right? In the history of America. So, wow. Over 100 years, anyway. Hmm. Yeah, so congratulations to, to Kevin McCarthy for making history. I guess we don't have a me- mechanism that acts either one of us, do we? <laughs> no, that's probably a gross oversight in year nine. Uh, <laughs> Open Source is the CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Craig Pickthorn from the Ontario Living Wage Network, and he's going to talk to us about uh, the increased in the minimum wage that went into effect this past Sunday, the gap that exists between the minimum and living wages, and he's going to give us a sneak preview of what direction the living wage in Guelph is going to be going in when it's announced next month. Hint, it's not down. That will be at the bottom half of the hour. Before that, we're going to talk about a few news items from the last week, including the CRTC. They're censoring the podcast! At least that's what some loudmouths on X want you to think. But we're going to look at the matter more closely. Uh, but first, it's been a pretty quiet week on Parliament Hill, all things considered. Um, as compared to the last couple of weeks. But we're going to talk about how those two major stories are con- continuing to sort of fall out. Uh, first, congratulations to Greg Fergus, who is the new Speaker of the House. He is the first black canadian to be uh elected or elevated to speaker of the house so that is an achievement on the other hand there are still a lot of questions about how uh a nazi uh someone who uh, was a nazi soldier essentially during world war ii was uh feted in the house during a important speech from the ukrainian president but even bigger than that um there was renewed calls this week to look at our the past history surrounding that, including the taking down of a couple of uh, memorials and graveyards around the country that are dedicated to the Waffen SS. Um, but I guess maybe let's I, actually let's take that first because that's um, as, as we enunciated last week, it's pretty easy to beat up on a Nazi. Um, uh, but, st- <laughs> but, but still, it is um, interesting that um, this has led, and I think appropriately to some bigger conversations about what is the the historical relevance of all this and even justin trudeau who hates to take a position uh, had to admit that maybe the time is right to look at uh, some of those past histories again yeah it's probably the time because most of them are dead i mean all you need to do is go to that uh cemetery and memorial in oakville and look at the graves mm-hmm. there's not many left from any side in world war two. So true. It may be time to release it. I don't know if they put a cap on it. Now people have probably heard about the, was it the Deshane report? The Deshane commission. I vaguely remember it. Yep. 
was back in the 80s under the Mulroney government. Canada, land of reports and committees. They they had a committee <laughs> to try and, and sort this question out because it came to the fore once again in the 80s when people were actively pursuing Nazi war criminals to try and find out how many were in Canada. And it wasn't really a secret, as we know, and all this has come out again. Trudeau has posited today, I think it was earlier on Wednesday, saying that well, we were looking carefully at releasing this report. So the report had two parts back. This is 40 years ago now, give mm-hmm. or take. Mm-hmm. One was what are the steps that we're going to take to try and find war criminals proper? Of course, now the argument is, you know, you were in the uniform anyway. But then the other part of that was was a a report that was kept secret. It'll probably be problematic to try and get the secrecy removed from that. Hmm. I'm, I'm not sure what hoops will jump through. Perhaps they're just hoping that this will go away or they're hoping enough of them are gone that they can reveal it. The problem is the legacy stuff. And of course it's come out as well about this. Um, the ex um, was a chancellor of university of Alberta. Well, it yeah. turned out he was, he was in this regiment as well and yeah. got the order of Canada. They don't often repeal the order of Canada, but it sounds like this one is going to be, I believe he's passed away. So you know they're probably going to take it back. That's an an easy win, but there's also it turns out there's at least a million dollars worth of endowments at the University of Alberta in the names of Waffen SS members, including this gentleman whose name escapes me completely. It mm-hmm. probably doesn't matter, um, but it, yeah. So it's it's not as if, and that's been going for years too. This money has been doled out to students for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's. I don't know if it's fair to compare it to me too. I it's it's obviously not the same thing, but it is that kind of thing where there is a an instance like this serious incident, and then there's a snowball effect where the information sort of leaks out first, you know, first in a wave, and then there'll be dribs and drabs, probably for the at least for the life of this government, but it may go on. I mean, I think that it is more or less. I think. This has sort of been a repeat thing, especially in the Polyevra era, where um, you make a mountain out of a molehill until um, you plow the molehill down, and then you come back to <laughs> you find something new. I mean, um, when was the last time you heard about the the the, the sacrilege nature of Paul Bernardo being sent to minimum or, or medium security. Haven't heard about that in a while. I think it was around the time Marco Mendicino was stopped, like stopped being the public safety minister. Hmm. Funny how that works. I mean, same thing about Chinese election interference. I mean, Nicole Chong is still out there talking about it, but you know, uh, Pierre Paul Ever doesn't seem to be terribly concerned about it anymore, or at least is not uh, publicly talking about it. So, I mean, that that's. I mean, unfortunately, we're kind of in an era, we're kind of in a silly season where the, the government is kind of long in the tooth. So any and, and everything's a scandal. Every scandal sticks for 48 hours and then we move on. Um, one of the things that doesn't seem to be, we don't seem to be moving on from, though, is the allegations from the Canadian government that the Indian government had Hardeep Singh Nijar killed. Um, that seems to be still stoking things. We heard this week that... 41 out of 62 of the Canadian diplomats in India are, um, I guess, scheduled to, uh, I guess, India has asked them to be brought home uh, on or before October the 10th. 
the Minister of External Affairs, whose name is Arindam Bakshi, uh, said it's not about you know this sort of tit for tat. It's just you know Canada has so many diplomats in India as compared to how many diplomats India has in Canada. But uh, the writing's kind of on the wall that uh, the allegation that the Indian government had a Sikh separatist uh, murdered in Canada um, seems to have hit a sore spot and is still hitting that sore spot three, almost four weeks later. Yeah, I was kind of wondering why they, why that number, 41 of 62, it just seems maybe they have to keep some kind of minimum complement. I don't know. It just, it was, it's two thirds of them, I suppose, but. Mm. stroke of a pen stuff who can we get rid of or I, I was wondering whether it was targeted like okay we don't like these ones so they should go <laughs> yeah but, the instigators you know, <laughs> Trudeau called the situation extremely challenging that's uh, an understatement if there ever was one but it is a weird balancing act I guess when you're wanting to build closer ties which is the, the other part of the message so this, this dual message is, is just kind of smushed together and like you know, on the one hand, you want to be friendly with India. There are lots of people from India and Canada, both as students, as we know, but also immigrants and, you know, naturalized Canadians. Mm-hmm. So, again, although 50% of that number, I just learned, are Sikh. Mm-hmm. So, that was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And it kind, of makes, it kind of makes sense. So, it's like what 1.4 million. I think of that giant number. So yeah, trying to keep everybody sweet in this is virtually impossible. And it, I, I go back to this and I think we talked about it. It's like you almost, I wonder why Trudeau decided to go that route first day of parliament. I think it was to take some heat off personally. <laughs> Personal analysis is like, okay, if I drop this grenade, then they won't, as like you said earlier there, they won't, they won't, all those other things will be lost in the conversation, mm. but that's a, it's a big grenade to drop knowing knowing full well that this would probably be the result right well, i think there was also a story in the works about it at the globe and mail oh so they're just trying to get the jump on that i think they were trying to get ahead of that yeah but it, it kind of and you mentioned about the diplomats india is also now talking bring up the air india bombing yeah b- back to the 80s to kind of emphasize or try to emphasize at least oh canada is a hotbed of sick extremism Right. And look at how, you know, you didn't do anything about that, really. Mm. Uh, so they're going back kind of like as Russia did with the, the Nazi in parliament to kind of find something that we can, we, they can make stick. Uh, well, there, there's definitely like a fake news angle to this. And we sort of seen that with, um, there was like a deep fake of Pierre Polyevre, um leaving a press conference when he's asked a question about India, which um, nope. somebody had doctored to make it look like he he leaves after somebody, after a reporter asked the question, which it was not true. He stood there and answered questions for... Although another. he is famous for doing that, so it wouldn't... Well, yeah, but I mean, you know... Smart need to... deep fake if that's what they did, because he <laughs> does that all the time. True. And then there was this story um, from this former um, diplomat Deepak uh, Vora, who said that uh, tr- the, there was the whole thing with the, the Canadian plane that had uh, trouble on the runway when it was trying to leave the G8 conference or the G20 conference. Um, 
this guy Deepak Vora said that's because it was a plane full of cocaine, unquote, that uh, Justin Trudeau was apparently um, high as a kite uh, when this was taken off, which is why it didn't take off. became a full page, like a front page story on the Toronto Sun, which seems kind of sketch. But uh, but I mean it, it's it's kind of hilarious. I mean we we could kind of laugh at it. It is fake news, but you know it's hilarious to me that soft spoken Justin Trudeau. You know, uh, I just want to say that um, <laughs> I did not do cocaine on my plane. Um, that's I kind of silly. <laughs> Uh, if you're talking about Coca-Cola, yeah, I did have one uh, mid-flight. I found it refreshing, um, but I don't want my uh, my drinking of Coca-Cola to be taken as uh, that I enjoy junk food because that's very bad for kids. Like, is that guy taking cocaine? I don't think so. He might win some cred if he took some cocaine. He might. He might. <laughs> Rock and roll style, right? It's like, oh, it's on the Coke. Wow, I can't. Yeah. But Certain if you look, people. you look at Donald Trump Jr. and you look at Justin Trudeau and says, "Which one of these two people take cocaine?" It's right. Yeah, <laughs> not quite off the rails, but probably doing yoga moves on the plane. That that would be that would be the the bit. Yeah, that would be. Ju- yeah, that's just a Trudeau in a nutshell. So they'd be like, uh, "He's culturally appropriated our yoga." That I mean, that would that would be a smart approach. That would us. stick, right? That would stick because the, the, the previous visit, obviously, there was you know, yes, as we know, that didn't go so well. Yes, yes. Uh, Nor did this one, but for different no, reasons. For right? different so. reasons. What, what what I do find interesting about this is like a lot of people making the point, like where's the United States and all of this? Because um, apparently it was U.S. intelligence that pointed the way that uh, Niger was um, murdered by the Indian government, and they've been kind of silent and it seems that uh you know the situation has put um the united states between a rock and hard place they don't want to take off india because we said last time we talked about this like india's key to the whole anti or the the whole sort of china strategy and keeping china contained but they also don't want to throw cannon under the bus so it's you know there i guess it sounds like there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff going on that um is probably surely to the annoyance of Justin Trudeau, who would love to have some of that heat taken off, um, whether he was trying to bury the Globe and Mail or not. (laughs) Yeah, the smoothing over is going to take a while. Yeah. If at all. Changing government might change it, right? So, Mm, I mean, it might. I mean, certainly like Canada's Sikh population are not like an homogenous political uh, like they're Sikhs who are conservative members or Sikhs who are liberal members. There's a Sikh who is the leader of the NDP. So it's, you know, it's it's a multi-dimensional voting block. So, I mean, you never know. Yeah, I think they have to, in India, at least the government have difficulty seeing it that way, right? Well, I mean, that's that's part of the problem in all of this. Yeah, I mean, and also it doesn't help in that regard that i think canada has is the home to the largest sikh diaspora outside of india yeah i think that's true so it's and, and, you know that and that was the thing when india released, released that sort of like travel warning that our diplomats aren't safe in canada because we have such a big sikh population never mind the fact that the vast 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 majority of people who identify with the sikh faith are not you know violent people looking to do violence so it's neither here nor there mm. Um, speaking of doing violence, well, maybe not, but, uh, 
certainly from the tone of some people on social media this week, uh, late Friday, which is, of course, as as our, our dedicated listeners know, is the, the day and time of the week you want to dump your deeply unpopular news. Um, the CRTC announced that they are looking to initiate registration for online streaming and podcasting operations um, that essentially make $10, billion, $10 million a year Canadian from their operations. Now, this <laughs> does not include us. It does not include um, Canada land or uh, we uh, we hate it and we love it. The, the movie podcast, like because none of us make $10 million from our podcasting <laughs> endeavors, but it does include Apple and Spotify and iHeartRadio and all these other operations that, that do have a considerable presence here in Canada are also podcast and distribution platforms. Um, some people are taking it as uh, the sign of pending censorship. Other people are taking it as sort of like, I guess, uh, overreach on the part of the CRTC that they're meddling in a, in a thing that they ought not meddle in. But um, I think the more even keeled among us have sort of taken it as a sign that this is the CRTC about to, that the registration is the first step in order to doing more regulation, that th this is them starting to get their ducks in a row about regulating some of these streaming services and, and podcast platforms. You the Nazi comparisons. I haven't seen one yet, but it's probably <laughs> coming. But yeah. <laughs> the first thing I visualized was because it was, as you mentioned, uh, Candleland, Jesse Brown Candleland had mm. said, and obviously not in the 10 million category either. Mm -hmm. But definitely well renowned. Uh, wondering if whether th this registration thing is going to spread to the larger, but not ten million or smaller players like Candleland mm. or Golf Politico or <laughs> Breezy Breakfast. Whatever you know, you <laughs> you name it, right? So it is. You just I'm just picturing like I have here in my hand a list of podcasters from <laughs> Wellington <laughs> County that should that owe us money, right? But. Uh, <laughs> But it's it's more along the lines of that same old CRTC uh, CanCon component thing, but not not just CanCon. It's that they're saying that the idea is that this will eventually lead to the um, groups that aren't necessarily represented. I saw one post that said Canadian and Indigenous content, and then another that went to break that down into like the requisite groups that probably are they, that do not probably do all have podcasts and do their podcasting and do it from a Canadian framework. Mm -hmm. I've just got the feeling that this is the, the bureaucracy, not really knowing what there's this thing called podcasting. Now we should go after that yeah. as well. Let's big players. But the problem is or the challenges of the, the larger players that they're going after are the ones that carry the smaller podcast. Right. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> is yeah. there going to be, a similar turning of the screws that there has been with the news and the, you know, similar legislation, right. Mm. With the news on, on Facebook and on other um, social media, uh, the blocking of Canadian news, which is a real, to me, a pain in the ass. Uh, it's something sure. that we both do. Right. But yeah. it's like, so these are the kind of corporate moves that are going to happen if they don't get what they want. So you have to wonder where this is going to go. If, if you're not a larger player in podcast land, are they going to start shutting people out in the same way? It's possible. It's possible. Um, I And Jesse Brown's point was that it's sort of chilled. And I think Michael Geist made the point too, that the, like the, the, the fact that 
the CRTC comes out and does this, which is like, hey, we're just like collecting some names and email addresses and stuff. And everybody knows it's kind of like the tip of the iceberg, but the CRTC hasn't announced like what exactly their intentions are. And the re- response to that is that it's put a chill. Like if you were on the brink of like investing, say $10 million into starting like a podcast network and, and building studios and building teams and, and like, are you going to do that now? Because you don't know what the CRTC is up to. It's the same thing that happened with Bill C-18. Um, Bill C-18 and the reaction from Meta and Alphabet in particular has chilled further development. And and that's like not that's not just like true people like on the local level who are doing their own thing like me, but like Village Media, the the head of Village Media who owns Guelph today and several similar sites came out and said, like, yeah, we're not starting any more sites until this whole C-18 situation gets figured out. And this comes at a time when, you know, Metroland shutting the doors of newspapers, um, you know, 60 different newspapers all around the country. It's, um, you know, it, 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 these kind of like, I guess, regulatory, I don't want to say overreach because we don't know what's an overreach. We don't know what's coming, but these sort of like regulatory changes have a chilling effect because nobody wants to make big investments while things are changing. And, but aside from that, you have this other portion of this where you have Pierre Polivier come out and say, um, we warned you that Justin Trudeau's online censorship laws were coming. Um, and, you know, here they are. And that, that I kind of refer, refer <laughs> paraphrase that at the end. But that this is this is an official statement from the official opposition leader. And of course, who gloms onto these things? Elon Musk. Glenn Greenwald, Jordan Peterson, all your favorite internet goons um, were like, see, this is Justin Trudeau sets or thing. And they don't know. Like, Glenn, Green- Glenn Greenwald is an American who lives in Brazil. He has no idea what the CRTC is, but because he's a right wing s- gas bag, he knows that he hates Justin Trudeau <laughs> because he's a liberal. And so, you know, it gets everybody else, you know, keyed up too. And, you know, I don't want the CRTC muddling in this. I mean, I guarantee you. Somebody came in one day and said, you know, I was talking to my grandson on the weekend and he's listening to something called a podcast. <laughs> I don't know what else heard about these podcasts and Spotify um, executives were uh, were testifying before a committee earlier this summer. And they were like, you know, this is a precarious time for podcasts like they've hit a wall, like all this investment was made into like celebrity talent, like Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, who lost their gig at spotify mm-hmm. um we saw that same in canada like global cbc ctv globe and mail toronto star all made big investments in podcasting to various degrees of success it's now kind of contracted let's gone back to the the little guys and and people so you know the last thing we need in sort of any of this is the the coarse hands of the crtc but at the same time i'm not like again the big thing is like, what are they thinking? What do they want to do? Um, ultimately, uh, Michael Geist said, like asking people to submit their name and email and phone number and you know a bit about their business isn't that big of a deal for the people who make ten million dollars a year. But where is this going? That's where I think a lot of people are struggling. Absolutely, and it's you know the problem. It's I think it's like you say, and as I said about the 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 bureaucracy of it because. Mm-hmm. CRTC and uh, I guess it involves Industry Canada as well have this 
broadcaster in a classic sense. And actually, mm-hmm. CFRU falls within that classic sense because we were built under that old structure where it's like mm-hmm. you need an antenna, you need you need all of this gear, you need you know there's there there was a certain set of requirements. There's a signal going through the air, right, mm-hmm. coast mm-hmm. to coast, or well now it's going coast <laughs> to coast or worldwide, whatever. So you've got the old framework, and you're tacking this on and that on. I mean, for all of its for all of its might. The CBC carries a hell of a lot of podcasts now, mm-hmm. and it is targeted. It's not as if they're, with the exception of maybe This American Life, a lot of that material is is specifically meant for Canada. But conversely, a lot of the, a lot of CBC produced material ends up in other markets as well, which is mm-hmm. kind of the old fashioned model that you know NPR in the states and some of the European outlets will pick up CBC stuff. Mm-hmm. You see on occasion, right? So that's you've got this crossover between this old model of how where how does material get shared around, and then you've got the it is even whether you like the podcast or not, it is a highly democratic medium, mm-hmm. right? Because you can effectively we're we're restricted in this show, but I think people that have heard us on podcasts is like you know it's it's that slightly slight bit different, yeah. Or swears, but <laughs> <laughs> after six p.m., things get a little blue. Yeah, but it's it's <laughs> yeah, it's still how how could we not be <gasps> in this? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Th- this is the part that I don't get now. That as I said, that the I'm I'm not sure if it's they just want the money. <laughs> is yeah. it like we're going to extract revenue from you so we can give it to? people that are doing stuff anyway yeah. you know what i'm saying that this is the part that doesn't compute with me it's like these things are if you so many underrepresented people have podcasts yeah they're not represented in media they're not journalists necessarily there's some good content out there if you look yeah the secret is to look for it but like how do you you how do you regulate that i don't even that's that's it it's you know how do you like elevate good content how do you elevate um like content for marginalized people and communities how do you not um heighten like jordan peterson's podcast for lack of a better term (laughs) you know like this the 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 fake news stuff you know how do you and, and and that's like where I mean, th- that's a tricky act, and that's where you know you don't want a big government apparatus necessarily, uh, you know, experimenting. Let's say, which is what this and Bill C eighteen to a certain extent feels like a great big experiment that we're all kind of losing um, with right now. Yeah, because the workaround would be just get hosting in another country, right? Sure. Yeah. Put your Canadian content in. I don't know. Take your pick. Get a VPN. Yeah. I anyway. I mean, that's always been a shortfall. Like, I remember when, you know, the head of CTV was like complaining about their kid using a VPN to get access to Netflix in, in the US instead of Crave. And it's like, well, you know, that's the problem when you, you know, create Crave, not as a competing streaming service, but as like an add on for your cable bundle. <laughs> and, and, you know, you hose up all like the, the good content. And, you know, of course, your kid isn't. Anyway. That's neither here nor there. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come right back with Craig Pickthorn of the Ontario Living Wage Network. You're listening to 
Open Source is Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. If I reach out, there'll be somebody. I'll do my best to be there for you in your corner with a meal for two, or I'll leave it at your front doorstep or just sit with you in silence. The loop in mind stays undefined. The healer said you're between time. The four walls you wait inside. I should have, would have. I can't split myself in two. I can't teleport to you. Can't go back to the way things were, to the way things were, to the way things were. And that's from the album at number 27 on this week's top 30 at CFRU. Mm-hmm. The artist is Kimortal. LP is called Shoebox, and the song is Get Better. And that goes out to everybody who is ill this week, which sounds <laughs> like about 85% of Guelph. <laughs> so whatever is ailing you this week, please get better. That song is for you. For me, it's the stupid trees in the backyard. The, the white flowers uh, are dying. That bloom on them are dying, and it's driving havoc with my allergies. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad you phrased that. I'm glad that came with the dedication because I was like, this is Scotty working overtime, just like going all the way down to number 27 <laughs> to find the perfect song for this week's show. Don't so. tell anybody I worked my way up the list from 30s. Because <laughs> that's where the freshest stuff is, right? You know, uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Um all right, so our interview this week is with Craig Pickthorn, who is the communications coordinator with Ontario Living Wage Network. They're the people who determine what the living wage is, and we're going to get into that in a second. But we're talking to Craig because the minimum wage in Ontario was increased to sixteen fifty-five last Sunday. You may be thinking, well, that's not too shabby, but you may recall that the living wage in Ontario or in Guelph, the Guelph area, I should say, is 1995. So that's still about a three or a two and a half dollar difference for um, people. Um, I guess, no, three and a half. Stupid. That's what I get for doing math on the air. But three <laughs> and a half dollar difference. So this is a pretty big deal to people. Um, the difference between a minimum wage and a living wage. And we're going to lay, lay all that out. How... Um, the Living Wage Network calculates the living wage, how that's going to be changing when they release their new calculations in November, and uh, why they're, you know, it's so difficult to try and uh, get us to a living wage as opposed to just having a minimum wage. So here's Craig Pickthorn and uh, our interview with uh, him, and we're going to press play on that right now. Okay, uh, Craig Pickthorn, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here. First, uh, in, in case people have heard the term, um, perhaps perhaps don't know the 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 considerations that go into it. How do how like what is a living wage, and how do you determine what a living wage is um, for for a given area? Sure. So what we do is we look at all the um, necessary expenses that a worker would have to cover in their community. Obviously, the large ones are shelter costs, rent, uh, you know, transportation child care and food. We also look at things that I'm sure we can agree are essential too, like high-speed internet access and a mobile data plan and uh, you know, a very modest vacation, um, non-OHIP medical like prescriptions and things like that. Then we also uh, take a look at 
any applicable taxes, transfers, and benefits from all levels of government. And so what you get at the end is an hourly wage that a worker must earn in order to make hands meet where they live. Mm-hmm. And for Guelph, uh, it's $19.95, and we calculated and released that last November. Right. And and j- this is something I was thinking about today. You guys refresh those numbers every two years, or is it a yearly thing now? Every uh, every year. It's every first okay. Monday of November every year. We release 10 new living wage rates for the entire province. And then you bunch them together by region so people know. So there's like Toronto, the GTA, yeah. Guelph, Kitchener area, London area, Windsor, es- Windsor Essex area, Northern Ontario. So those are just right. the ones I remember off the top of my head. Um, so there's a new new um, living wage uh, coming up at the end of this month, beginning of next month. Uh, I don't know if you want to give away any spoilers, but, you know, uh, up or down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's going up. They always go up. They're going up this year um, in all regions, some more than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they're they're all going up. So they, and, you know, our certified employers anticipate this as well. They know that they're going up. They do get a bit of a notice as to how much. And uh, then they have a period of time uh, to actually implement those changes in their payroll in order to maintain certification with us. But they almost right. always do. We've lost very few employees over the over the years to, you know, hey, this increase is just too much. I can't handle it. Uh, that's pretty rare. That was actually one of the questions I, I had. Um, but along with that, too, is and I'm going to throw a couple of talking points at you that uh, I hear in, in some of the other coverage about minimum wage and, and living wage. Um, and that is that it puts too much stress on small businesses in particular um to keep up like the idea of implementing a, a universal living wage like making the minimum wage a, a living wage puts too much pressure on small businesses to um i, I guess on on their budgets to it, it has an effect on their back ends mm-hmm. well we've been hearing that um all through the years before the pandemic during the pandemic uh we've heard it uh, ever since i've been doing this job since 2016 so it's always been the case that it's too much and too soon uh, when you're talking about increases to the those that are earning the the legal minimum, the 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 least you could pay someone whilst still not breaking the law. Um, you know, that's always been the narrative around there. To that I would say, well, we have in the province now almost 900 uh workplaces that are certified living wage, which means that they pay all their workers at least a current minimum or current living wage for their region. Mm-hmm. And they're doing just fine. And some of them have come to us over the course of the pandemic. And some of them come to us from sectors that, you know, typically rely on minimum wage work, like, um, you know, the service industry, uh, restaurants, uh, cleaners, security guards. These are, you know, you, you typically see a lot of minimum wage work in these sectors and they're doing just fine. In fact, one cleaner company that's certified with us, they, are expanding all throughout the province now. So really this is a, there's another way there are employers that are listed on our website at ontariolivingwage.ca are showing that there's a a different way to go about business that doesn't just look at workers as a cost to be controlled. Rather, they're a part of the business's success. And the the reverse is also true to an extent as well that it, it, people we, we kind of focus on those upfront costs that you, instead of you were paying just to pull numbers out of my head you were paying uh, somebody 
$16 an hour. Now you're paying them $17 an hour. But there are cost benefits on the back end because if you're paying somebody a living wage, um, they're more more likely to stick around because they are making a good, decent wage um, as opposed to you know someone who feels like they can move around and look for a better deal um you know because you know having to hire people train people lose people and then hire someone else and then train them that costs money as well sure yeah it, look upon it as an accountant would yeah and then go well what's the real cost of this increase uh when you factor in the reduced uh recruitment cost which is a challenge now uh the mm. the the in the decrease in turnover, which also costs in productivity and training time, there's costs associated with paying someone minimum wage. And our employers report to us that they, um, you know, experience some of these benefits um, by paying the living wage for sure. Mm-hmm. The other talking point I want to address, and I, I did hear it on the weekend when um, Ontario and a couple other provinces uh, had uh, minimum wage increases over the weekend. Um yeah. The effect on inflation that we're paying people more, so there's more money out there, more money. Uh, you know, the more spending there is, the higher the inflation goes. Uh, how about you know putting our high inflation rates on the the heads of workers? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You know, a lot of the, the impacts are not distributed evenly across societies, and so the things that go up in price are not things that people who are in working poverty are buying um, or or they are rather and people who are doing well off are not purchasing the things, the prices that are, are skyrocketing. No, no wealthy person has to deal with uh, an, an increase in a, a rent at, a, at, a, at a, a, a place where there's no rent control because it's right. a building that was built after 2018 or whatever that thing is that was supposed to create more <laughs> affordable housing for us. Yeah. So, you know, it's certainly not distributed evenly across the wage spectrum or income spectrum, I should say. Right. Um, and I would say like these talking points are still out there, but I, I will say, and perhaps you can confirm this just for, you know, from my own anecdotal observations, it seems to be happening less and less. I remember the, the big um, minimum wage hikes, I think it was in 2014, 2015. And those were accompanied by a lot of stories about, oh my God, you know, stores are going to be boarded up. People are going to be let go because places can't. That obviously never materialized. There wasn't like a recession because we were increasing the minimum wage by a couple of dollars. Does it feel like to you that, you know, that that's a message that's getting out? You're having to swat like less and less of these sort of, you know, economic concerns that you know, we kind of get hammered over the head with when people get paid more. Yeah, I, th- I think so. It's hard. Sometimes it's hard to to tell exactly. But um, yeah, like when maybe not, because I remember having discussions <laughs> over living wage week, is, which is when we release new living wage rates. And when the uh, the minimum wage now goes up every year on October 1st. And so we usually get a call, um, you know, just <laughs> call or two to talk about the difference between the minimum wage and living wage. And yeah, you know what? We do have to remind people that, uh, Hey, it's been studied as well. And it, you know, they, they looked at the increase to $15 in uh, 2018 and they studied, well, what happened to employment numbers? They actually went up by 2.8% the next year. Mm. 
there was no suppression of 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 jobs number of jobs available uh there was there was you know the the number of people working went up mm -hmm. and what so, about from the oh sorry go ahead no that's that's it okay because <laughs> i was gonna ask about from the other side of this which is the government side because it does feel like i mean we're not at a living wage yet in terms of you know measuring the minimum wage but the fact that we now have like the yearly increases it has been going up you know the last several years not necessarily on a yearly basis but it has been going up perhaps it's not as fast as we would like but there does seem to be a general acknowledgement on the government side that there's a gap here that needs to be closed yeah yeah i mean the the intent of the bill was to really it goes back to uh, bill 148 from the wind government and they said go from 1140 to 15 immediately so close that distance that was the largest minimum wage increase uh, in history. And so close that gap immediately and then start tacking on the increases um, every year tied to inflation in some way. But of course, that didn't happen on the time frame that they wanted. And it was repealed by uh, the current government. Right. But they did eventually go to 15, begrudgingly in uh, was that 2021. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so you're just playing this game of catch up now so that you have this condition where it's hard to imagine that in the current scheme of things that you'd close in the distance of the gap saying Guelph is $4 and 35 cents, yeah. even after the increase from, um, you know, just, uh, this Sunday past to $16 and 55 cents. That's still, you're still short by $152 a week in being able to pay your bills and make ends meet. So I think there's, you know, there's work to be done. Um, on advocating government, but that's not really our role. We work right. with employers and we certify them and we calculate living wage rates. But, you know, there's other tools that the government has at their disposal. Um, you know, what if they, what if they got in stronger rent control? The single biggest, right. as you can imagine, thing in our living wage calculation is, is shelter costs. And, you know, there's a lot of folks that live in a, a rental unit that has been occupied uh, after 2017 or whatever that threshold is. And that means that it, they can just raise the rent by any amount year over year. And, you mm -hmm. know, so that's, we're seeing, especially in city centers, we're seeing our, our shelter costs, um, just skyrocket and governments have a, have the ability to, to do something about that. You know, there was a, there was a, a few years back, the, uh, Ontario government introduced uh childcare subsidy. Mm -hmm. And it really it brought down our childcare costs in our calculations. So where it would it would have gone up by X amount of you know whatever that year, our living wage rates were were more modest in a way because of that childcare subsidy. We right. do an average of three different family types, and for that reason, including a single person with no children, so that for that reason, the childcare doesn't factor in as much as shelter because that's what everybody needs and food. But you know, it's just an example of of things that governments can do to um, tackle working poverty and make things a little bit more affordable. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff that's outside your brief, and you know, I'm thinking about like ODSP rates and and Ontario work rates, which are even further below sure. um, the the living wage, you know, benchmark than the minimum wage. You know, that's and that's again, that's not something that's inside your area of of coverage, yeah. but. I mean, it absolutely affects people the same. Um, looking at it this way, um, 
and people may, you know, people can go to the website and look up the map and things. Um, people may be living in London, the London area where I think it's 1805 presently and the winter Chatham Kent Essex area where it's like 1815. And then, you know, look at Guelph where it's 1955 and then look to Toronto where it's, you know, over $23. And so the question is, you know, we know about the migration sort sort of from the greater Toronto area, you know, westward and eastward as, you know, people are, you know, looking for affordability. Um, is that like migration in terms of the living wage? Is that something that you you also see as as you're looking at this year over year that you know yeah the 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 living wage in London is 1805 but it could be 1995 like next year or the year after it's hard to predict because we're what we do is we're looking at a lot of numbers that mm. are from the previous year we have a we show our work you can you know uh, go to our website there's a documentation tab there you can see exactly how we get our numbers some of those numbers like shelter and uh, what's called a market basket measure from Statistics Canada are really from 20, like we're going to release 2023 living wage rates, but the numbers are from 2022. Mm. And that's just sort of a, a consequence of using statistical tools like that. Um, you can't just go out and, you know, measure the cost of grapefruits in all supermarkets in, <laughs> in the province, right? So- you know, I guess to answer that, like, where's it? How do we predict? Our 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 prediction model is is uh, already one year behind, right? Uh, so we 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 do what we can. We're certainly better than uh, the politically set minimum wage, but um, you know, there are tools there. There are tools that are uh, better at at doing calculating. You know, the the specific uh, costs of living in in population centers uh, that are, that are done specifically for that reason. Mm. Whereas our living wage is really a tool to combat working poverty that employers can use. Right. It, it, you almost, it almost sounds like you're saying, you know, you're the, the work you're doing is kind of a lagging indicator in terms of where the economy is going that by the time you you've like determined where the living wage is for, for this calendar year, it's, you know, I don't want to say it, it's, out of date, but you know, that is, that feels kind of like what you're saying. It's, you yeah, know, no, it's, it's totally a, absolutely. <laughs> it's a lagging indicator. We collect a um, childcare information the same year. Uh, some other things like uh cell phone and internet plans are collected over the summer. Uh, but those really, uh, they don't, they don't factor in as much, nearly as much as, as uh, the shelter cost, food and uh, transportation. Right. Transportation is is not uh, too out of date, um, but it still relies on some statistical uh, tools as well. So, mm -hmm. um, again, not to get into spoilers, but um, can you talk a bit about some of the pressures that are on the living wage as you, as you, you're kind of finalizing your calculations this year? You know, what are, what oh, are kind you, of the sore spots? Oh, the sore spots? Yeah, are uh, shelter, shelter, and shelter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh you know food is uh food is i shouldn't say that like so glibly food is a yeah um, a factor as well food affordability but shelter costs are like the biggest cost that anybody has to face in the province and right. when they balloon up like that they really affect the the rates right and um 
I mean, that affects all types of, you know, housing situations because, you know, costs get passed on to renters as well. If, you know, interest rates go up and yeah, it's, I I guess, are there any kind of static costs, like things that are sort of, you know, people are assured that although maybe they're seeing increases on the food side or the shelter side, but like other costs aren't hitting them as hard. Because of the subsidy, uh, for when there's childcare available, because we don't right. look at that, right? There's childcare right. deserts, yeah. So it doesn't make much <laughs> sense to, you know, we we understand that's a blind spot ours, yeah. But the the uh, childcare costs have have stabilized, uh, in part because of that childcare subsidy, mm-hmm. um, internet and uh, data and just tech access like uh, streaming and, uh, you know, having a cell plan and having uh, home internet access have kind of stabilized year over year. Um, mm. they're, they're really high in the North, right. um, but that's, they've stayed high. They stayed where they are up North and they've stayed more or less across the province. Um, so those are the, those are the stable things, but they don't really, you know, they, they, they account for like less than 5% of, of, uh, maybe 10% of each individual individual living wage rate. Right. It's, it's kind of a reminder there of, um, how big, uh, some of our costs are in terms of taken out of the total budget. Yeah, looking looking at this from the other side, from from the the side of you know businesses looking to be a, a living wage employer. You said that you've actually seen a lot of people hop on during the pandemic, and I think there's been sort of this tale that the the pandemic's been a drag on on the economy and a, a drag on you know the bottom line and and you know hel- helping people you know make a living wage, but. Um, like any crisis, there's also been opportunity in the crisis too. It sounds like you're saying. I think that, uh, well, it's true. We have, uh, we went into the pandemic with about 200 or so employers and we're now sitting at 622 Mm -hmm. with about 900 certified workplaces. So, you know, like Meridian credit union has 90 plus branches. So we count that too. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and uh, so there, there's, you know, there's, there, there has been an uptick, and there has been, um, I think, a, a change, a bit in, in in where people's heads are at with regards to low income work, hmm. and this idea, well, it's an unskilled job, so right, you're just a teenager, you know, that has changed. I think to go back to your earlier question, I guess sometimes it can be hard for me to see that change when I'm in it trying to answer these questions uh, to various, um, you know, fine outlets. But I think, yeah, there there has been a shift, and uh, that people people just it's it's uh, there's a new thing that uh, employers report back to us about. Hey, what's the benefit? You've been a certified living wage employer for a year. What what have you noticed? Unprompted, they're starting to return with answers like, "Well, we enjoy better standing in the community. You know, people people like that we're a certified living wage employer. They they like right. to." You know, they can go to our website at terrylivewage.ca and hit the hit the directory and then go near me, you know, find find a certified living wage bar or restaurant or coffee shop to to patron patronize. And so I think people are are starting to think about work along those lines, which we're happy about. Yeah, that's such an important point that you know, I, I've talked a lot about in looking at labor issues that, you know, there used to be once upon a time where you would leave your high school, you'd walk down the street to the factory, get on the line, be paid a, a 
a living wage, what we would now call a living wage and be part of the middle class in three or four years and buy your own home and start a family and all that. Um, the quote unquote unskilled labor, though, that didn't disappear. It went all went to the service industry where we've sort of classically undervalued labor, things like stocking the shelves, waiting tables, cooking, doing the dishes. Um, and it, it seems like from, from what you're describing, there is kind of this reevaluation of of work and the type of work people do that's helping to drive people to commit to your program. Yeah, not nearly fast enough, unfortunately, <laughs> but yeah. we're getting there. <laughs> well, can you talk a bit about the process of how, you know, maybe someone's listening and and are curious about how they can, you know, uh, be part of the certified living wage program, how they can be a, a certified employer? You know, how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, just uh, over the summer, an employer came to us. Uh, it's one of the... Oh, yeah, the city of uh, Waterloo, the entire city <laughs> decided to become a certified living wage employer. Uh, they raised the pay of a whole slew of uh, seasonal and part-time and contract workers. Um, so how did that happen? They they come to us, OntarioLivingWage.ca, certify. You click on certify. Uh, you sign a little form, and then we get back to you. We usually have a phone interview of some kind. Uh, we talk about what the program entails also on that page by the way is an employer handbook you can read all about the different provisions of our program what the requirements are and what you can expect from us uh they uh you know they they tell us that they, they are interested in certification if they meet the requirements which is really to uh, it's pretty simple you have to pay all your employees full-time part-time and ultimately contract employees uh a local updated living wage rate I say ultimately contracted because sometimes, as with uh, certain large employers, there's you know there's uh, there's contracts in place for third party employees like cleaners or security guards, right. and so you have to wait for that contract to come up for renegotiation, right. and then you put a living wage provision in that saying, oh, everyone that works on this premise must be making at least a living wage. But uh, you know, very often the case they're already there. Um, maybe they have to bring some people up, like was the case with the city of uh, Waterloo. And uh, a, a modest uh, fee is paid based on uh, your size and whether or not you're nonprofit or for-profit. And uh, we sign a license agreement, which is a legal agreement between us and the employer that outlines our obligations and uh, rights. Uh, and that's uh, that's that. Then <laughs> we uh, try to celebrate you as best we can as a certified employer, it's the newest one in our directory. You get issued uh, uh, pieces that you can use to identify yourself as a certified employer in the form of uh, window decals, uh, point of sale decals, uh, mm -hmm. badges that you can place on your website or in print material. And uh, yeah, that's it. It pays to be a member. Um, but it, it, I mean, just to wrap up, you know, uh, something like the, uh, the municipality, uh, city of Waterloo, where, you know, we tend to think of you know, municipal employees, we think of the sunshine list and all the people on the sure. sunshine list, but you know, there are lifeguards and the people who cut the park grass and, and yeah, absolutely all those people who are on the other end of that doing the hard work as it were. <laughs> yeah. And you know, um, they're, they're, they're kind of working for us where yeah. they're employed as, as members of the public, this public sector are, are the places where we live are em employing these people in our behalf. And so, you know, there's, there's, that's just one reason of many why municipalities choose to certify. Um, 
you know, so it's uh leading by example. Yeah. If you, if you want people, you want to eliminate working poverty. Uh, one of the easiest things you can do to eliminate working poverty is pay a living wage. That's a perfect place to end it. Uh, Craig Pickthorn, thank you so much for all your time today. And thanks for the good work too. Thank you, Adam. It was a pleasure to be on. And once again, that was Craig Pickthorn from the Ontario Living Wage Network. Um, stay tuned because you'll be hearing more about the living wage. Uh, November 6th, I think, is the date that they will release the new numbers. November 6th. Right on. Just in time for the budget. That's going to be a very, very busy week with budget stuff and living oh, wage yeah. stuff. And Anyway. Anything else to add before we wrap up? Uh, not really. <laughs> okay, perfect. Few <laughs> words for once. Yeah. Well, well, it's Thanksgiving long weekend. Happy Thanksgiving oh, yeah. to everyone who's celebrating, mm-hmm. by the way. Um, for the show, that's it. We hope you liked it. You can listen to our show again by downloading it every Monday from our website at opensourcesguelph.com. We're also at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean for now. Or check out your favorite <laughs> podcast app like Apple, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. We're also on the socials at Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. I will return to CFRU after the long weekend, Wednesday at 3 p.m. for the movie review show I co-host called End Credits. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Twitter X, and Blue Sky. And if you're joining us at our regular time on a Thursday, please stay tuned for Turtle Island Underground. Indeed, and that's one of the many great programs that you will hear on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. As for this show, we will return next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another edition of Open Sources, and we will see you then.